Well, that is just uh, fantastic uh, singing. Thank you for ministering to my heart. Matthew, is that that good every Sunday? Yes, yes. We are so thankful for Matthew. We've been friends a long time now, and I'm so thankful for the church at Riverbend uh, to do this and to have this conference and to see the growth over the years. But it's already been a joy for me. I think maybe Dr. Beakey and I would say that we probably receive back more from you than we can give. But that last session, I, I was wondering if, I, I, I was looking in the pulpit right now, did he have a conveyor belt in that pulpit? There's more right here. Um, that, well, I'll let him do that. Um, he is, they are a blessing, Reformation heritage. In fact, they know that we just uh, sent a family that was from our church in California to work in that Reformation heritage publishing company. And we're so thankful for the partnership that we share the books that are being written, those are tremendous materials. So please make sure you, uh, you buy those up. They, those are the ones that are near and dear to my heart, are the Puritans, and I'm just, I'm just thankful. So uh, I also am thankful that as I was praying for you and just how to put the messages together, as, as Dr. Beaky is, I... I did a little change, which is not too abnormal for me. I, uh, I just kept praying about my second and third message. And I really wanted to take you from what I mentioned. Was that this morning? Or was that two days ago? No, it was this morning. Um, I wanted to take you from the doctrine, if you will, the position, the creed. And then I wanted to take you over to the practice of what that looks like. And Dr. Beakey laid that out so eloquently um, in the last session, covering some of those practical features of sanctification. And he said it so well, and I'm listening intently on the front row, because in the doctrine of sanctification, there is two aspects to that. There is a positional reality, and then there is a practical reality. And I think we often move to the practical, sanctification, holiness and forget that uh, sanctification is also a positional truth. First Corinthians 1.30, we've been sanctified. And so even now, I think it was Bunyan who would say that, that as God the Father looks down, he looks through rose-colored glasses and sees us in the righteousness of Christ, which is complete, not my sin in part, but the what? The whole. But there's also that practical element upon which I want to direct our attention to in that desire for holiness. And so I want to turn to one of the means that he mentioned this afternoon to Psalm 19. To Psalm 19. It's a familiar psalm, I think, to you. There are two ways in this psalm that God has revealed himself. I think it would be fair as you're turning to Psalm 19. We can call those the works of God. And secondly, the words of God. And in 
19, 1 through 6, David is really showing the revelation of God in creation. Look there at 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. He's speaking of God's work in creation there. But that's not all he does. God has revealed himself both in creation, but secondly, I think we would call that the greater revelation of God. He has revealed himself to us in his written word. Because in his written word, it's there that we find the glorious person of Christ. And so what I want to do in this time is focus on the transforming power of the word of God as a means of sanctification from this text. Read it along with me and I'll read 19, 7 through 14. It says there, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a great text. I'm not going to finish that this afternoon with you, um, but I'll do it both this day as well as I think it's on Monday. Let me see if I could break down first. Let's build a little platform the structure, if you will, of this psalm. First, the psalm gives six distinctive titles for the word of God, okay? These are, if you want, for those grammarians out there, the nouns. And these titles describe what the word of God is, Glance down. Here's these titles. Verse 7, the word of God is called the law of the Lord. Verse 7b, it's called the testimony of the Lord. The word of God in verse 8 is called the precepts of the Lord. Verse 8b, it's called the commandment of the Lord. Interesting, in verse 9, it's called the fear of the Lord. Verse 9b, it's called the rules of the Lord. Each statement is 
is saying something about what the Bible is, and each line has its own contribution, if you will. So in six statements, we are told here that you can see that the scriptures are the Lord. And he uses the word for Lord there, uh, Jehovah, or the covenant name of God, because he's speaking to us. It's interesting, if you were to look in the Hebrew in verse 1 through 6, the Hebrew term for God there is El. We know it as Elohim, the creator God. But here in 7 through 14 is the covenant name of God. So let me just say that there's six distinctive titles. You can see that. Secondly, there are six descriptive qualities of God's word. And if you have to know, these are adjectives. They are describing the titles, these descriptive qualities. Look at verse 7. The The law of the Lord is perfect. Verse 7b, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. 8b, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. And then the final descriptive quality is the rules of the Lord are true. So again, I want you to see this. You say, well, why would I take the time? Or why does the psalmist take the time? Because you're holding in your hand the very breath of God. And he wrote it in such a way that it is the greatest masterpiece in all of the earth because it's God's, right? So there's six distinctive titles. There's six, if you will, descriptive qualities. And then thirdly, just laying the platform, there are in this text six beneficial effects of God's word in the life of a believer, And I'm going to focus there, at least in terms of application. You say, well, what are those beneficial effects? You can see them there. Look again at 7. It revives the soul. Verse 7b, it makes wise the simple. There again in 8, it rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It is enduring forever. And then a 9b, it is righteous altogether. So in each line, there is a distinctive title for God's word. There is a descriptive quality of God's word. And then finally, there's a beneficial effect of God's word. And obviously, this reveals the utter sufficiency of scripture for us as believers. The greatest need in New Zealand is a recovery of the book, amen? And I think it needs to be recovered amongst the leadership, but it needs to be recovered in you as well, even this afternoon. Listen, if you're in that category of 18 to 24, I'll tell you that the most telling thing in your life in the next three years will be what you do with that precious book that you hold in your hand. And there is a promise here. There is a beneficial effect of God's word. So here's the thesis. Here is a six-fold description of God's transforming power found in the word of God 
that will change your life. Okay? Six-fold description of God's transforming power found in his word that will change your life. It, it can transform you. Dr. Beakey was talking about holiness, and there's various means there. Here is a crucial one. Is there other? Sure. He mentioned those. Prayer's in there. The role of trials is in there. But one of the greatest is going to be what you do personally with the Word of God. So you may have come with a group. Okay. You may have come with a church. Okay. You may have come with another ministry. But I'm directing this to you individually on what you do with the Word of God. Okay. So let's dive in. The first transforming power of the word of God, okay, is it restores the soul. First transforming power of the word of God is it restores the soul. Look at the text. Let's pick it up in verse 7. It says there that the law of the Lord is perfect. There in the distinctive title... That book that you hold, that Bible that is turned on, there's a distinctive title. This is the very breath of God. And the title is, it's the law of the Lord. In other words, you're holding in your hand the very instruction from God himself. Okay? That term there, law, speaks of doctrine. That's what the... Hebrew term means. It refers to doctrine. It refers to teaching. It is a law. This, as you hold it, is God's law for us. Now, I want to make clear here that the law is not referring to the first five books of Moses. That is also called the law. But here, when he uses this term... He's referring to the entire doctrine of God, the whole counsel of God. In other words, you're holding in your hand the manual for living. The law is a comprehensive term for God's revealed will that is found in his word. So there's a distinctive title. It's a law. But look, secondly, there, here in this first point, there's a descriptive quality. You see it. Look, at, look down. And by the way, if you're a young preacher, I always point you down. These are not my words. These are the words of Scripture. So it makes sense when we're preaching, if I'm going to tell you to look down, because I want you to see the word. But look again on the descriptive quality. The law of the Lord... It says there, is perfect. Just, it's this. It's without error. It's perfect in all of its parts. It is without error. It is without defect. The idea here is the word you're holding is spotless. It's flawless. It's blameless. Jesus said, you can finish the statement in John 17, 7, 17, 17, your word is what? It's truth. 
That's what it says. David cried out, and I don't know how to, uh, if these are put on a screen, maybe I'll send my notes to Phil and I'll just send you my sermon. Listen though, okay? Because David cried out in Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. You're holding in your hand truth from God, instruction from God that is the doctrine of God and it's truth and it's truth that is perfect. Psalm 1830, it says that God, his way is perfect. And then it says the word of the Lord proves true. That's the ideal of perfect. Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. Don't let anybody tell you at a university that this is a piece of literature. This is the law of the Lord, and it is perfect. And if something is perfect, nothing could be added to it, and nothing can be taken from it. Obviously, the cults add to God's revelation. The Muslims do. They add the Koran. The Jehovah Witnesses add to it. The Mormons as well. They're adding to it. But if something is perfect, if something is blameless, if it's the very law of the Lord, then we don't need added revelation, right? I remember one time many years ago, I'm in Chicago where you guys took off from. And I, I'm with my family. I have seven kids. I think I had five at that time. So I have to, what is it called, hail down a, a taxi? I've only seen it on movies. You just stand out in the corner and go like this. So I hid my wife. I hid my kids. How do you put seven people in a car? So I, I got the taxi, and we couldn't all fit. But, you know, pastor's salary. I'm not going to get two when the kids are little. So I go in the front seat, and then I must have had five by that time with my wife. All six are in the back, okay? And so I'm talking to the taxi driver, taking up every opportunity, as Dr. Behe said, and I obviously see he's from another country, and I begin to impress the gospel. I said, hey, you're from, where are you from? And he told me where he's from, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not even from Chicago. I'm from California. I said, but uh, tell me what you believe. He went on to share that he's a Muslim with me, he shared that with me, and I said, well, you know, there's a big difference between what I believe and what you believe, and I wasn't being rude, I just said, let's talk about that, and let's talk specifically, I, with it, you know, what do you got, eight minutes around the corner, ten minutes, and I said, let's talk about Christ, that's the, that's the difference, I've got all the kids just watching, like, I, I turned around, and about six, twelve eyes were like this. Because I'm in the front seat with the guy. You're not supposed to do that. And I begin to tell him about Christ. And I begin to tell him about the cross. And I begin to tell him what Christ did for us on that cross. And he tells me, and Muslims believe this, he says to me, well, that wasn't Christ on the cross. Right? If you've studied their, the Koran and you know what they believe, they don't believe that was Christ on the cross. And so I asked him, well, if that wasn't Christ on the cross, who was that on the cross? And they believe it was an imposter. It wasn't Jesus in the middle. It was another imposter. And I thought, 
wow. And then from the back seats, I turn around and my oldest daughter, who's probably seven at the time, is going like this. I mean, we're trying to teach them young, like Dr. Beaky was saying, get those books into the kids. We read biographies to them. And I said, Christine, what do you think? She goes, Daddy, that's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible says? Jesus died for my sins. So she began to share with him the gospel, and she was about seven. But listen, that book you hold is living and active. And it's perfect, and there's no error found in it. I mean, I'm studying Daniel right now. They have never discovered even an archaeological piece that would discredit the Word of God. And it doesn't surprise me. It's perfect, if you will. Spurgeon put it this way, it's a crime to add to it, it's treason to alter it, and it's a felony to take from it. Jude says that you're holding in your hand the faith once and for all, what? Delivered to the saints. You don't need anything else. So here, because it's God's word, you say, well, what does it do in my life? Look down again at verse 7. It says there, it revives the soul. Okay? It restores the soul. Listen, I want to encourage you that God employs his word as an instrument in your sanctification, in your holiness. It has as an ingredient inside of it to restore your soul, nephesh in the Hebrew. It's the, it's the real you. Sometimes, look down at verse 7, depending if you're holding a King James, it says it's converting the soul. In other words, the law of the Lord is perfect, and in that King James, it's fair. It's converting the soul. I really think that here the focus seems to be not so much on conversion, but an inner restoration. The, the word there is a restoring disorder. In other words, there's decay, if you will. There's death at times in our life, in our animation towards, if you will, the Spirit of God in the reflection of our hearts. And here, the Word gives life. The ideal is the imparting of the newness of life. It gives and has life in it. It brings, here's the thought, back the soul. It takes the soul, though we've been redeemed, we become stained at times in that process of holiness, and the Word of God can turn it around. It can revive your soul. You may come to a place of doubt, or a place of discouragement, or a place of even depression, and the promise here and the beneficial effect is that the Word of God is going to revive your soul. Listen, I'm asking you individually. Are you in the book? Are you reading the book? Are you gathering the book? Are you reading from his law? I mean, even when I got on the plane, Mr. Bale said, Scott, do you have your visa? I said, no, I have my passport. 
do you have your visa? No, I have my passport. What's a visa? I had to get a visa. Go online to Ninzetta. I don't know what it was called. And I had to enter all the info, Mary, we were talking about that. And I got a visa. Why? Because that's New Zealand law. And yeah, I had to do it. I didn't want to not be here with you. Listen, if you have to do stuff by the law, this is God's law. And the beneficial effect is it's going to turn your soul around. It says in Psalm 119.25, give me life according to your word. Psalm 119.32, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. In fact, in Psalm 119.107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord. According to your word. Listen, I promise you, the beneficial effect stated here in the word of God, it, was, it will restore life to your soul. So listen, I don't know where you are. I don't know what trial you're facing, what you've been through with the cyclone, what you've gone through with COVID. I'm asking you if you're in the word of God. Because the beneficial effect is... It's going to change you. It's going to restore you. Amy Carmichael, uh, missionary to India, Dr. Beaky, I was just thinking what you were saying about those biographies. I probably read 40 of them to my children. And I was reading, well, I don't want to be negative, those little orange YWAM ones. And they gave a short account of a man or woman's life, but I'd read them all the time. I mean, you start doing one chapter a night. You get through a biography in two weeks, maybe, and then I was off to another one. But here's what Amy Carmichael said about the Word of God. Where the book is read, the life is changed. Sorrowful people are comforted. Sinful people are transformed people. People that walk in darkness Walk in the light. Is it not a wonderful to think that this book is in your hands today? Are you utilizing it as a means of holiness? That you say, well, Scott, I don't know if I can be changed. Tush. Read it. Listen to it. Hear from it. It is so powerful it will change you from the inside out. I think this is why the psalmist said this, and you probably know it, in 119.97. Oh, how I love your, what? Law. I don't know what your opinion is of the Bible, but the psalmist said, I love your law. The psalmist again in 119.77 said, for your law is my delight. In other words, it's perfect. It's going to revive the soul. You could probably quote with me in your heart and mind, Psalm 23. Think about it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my what? Soul. 
Listen, maybe you've, you've never thought about it like this. I'm telling you to read it. I'm telling you, it's so powerful and so beneficial that it's going to revive the downcast soul. It's going to take a heart of bitterness and turn it to one of forgiveness. It has the power in it to change and transform the life. You know it as I do. The word of God is living and what? Active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. You're holding in your hand the very breath of God. So I was trying to get this, you know, across to my kids. This is many years ago. We're on vacation. We rented a, a beach house in Southern California. I don't know, with a bunch of families, and there must have been 20 little children there. So they said, Scott, can you do the devotion on Sunday? I said, sure. And so I just thought, okay, the word of God is living and active, sharper. So there's 20 kids sitting there, and they said, Pastor Scott's going to do devotion, or Uncle Scott's going to do the devotion. So I took a paper, paper bag, and I went into the beach house, and I begin to find the sharpest tools in the house. I mean, we're a guest in there, but I go in and I get the big steak knives, I get the little steak knives, I get the bigger knives, and I'm putting them in the bag. I go into the garage, I get a hatchet, okay? I uh, go in the garage and I get something else like a saw, okay? And then I find a little pocket knife. I must have had 10 instruments in there. And then I sat down with the kids on that Sunday morning and I said, I got some sharp objects in here. In fact, they're so sharp, I can't share them with you of what's in the bag. No, Uncle Scott, we want to see them. And then I'd look in the bag and I'd say, oh no, these things will take your fingers off. These things will jab you. Uh, it's too, I can't do it. Uncle Scott, please show us. I said, no, these are so sharp. You better go ask your mom and dad. So off 20 kids went, you know, and the half, Uncle Scott said it's too sharp. And they, they came back and they said, they said it's okay. So you understand the story. I begin to bring them out one by one from the least, um, the, the, the one that was less sharp. And I'm just bringing out the little pocket knives and they're all just like, ah. Then I start to get a little bigger and then I reach in and I say, this one's too sharp. No, Uncle Scott, it's okay. So I bring it out, and I'm moving down to the little knives and then to the big knives. And then I said, oh, this one might make me cry. And I pull out the hatchet. And they're like, whoa. A few of them back, a few of them backed up. And you know what I'm going to say. But I saved the best one for last. And I reached into the bag, and I pull. I feel like Dr. Beaky now. I reached into the <laughs> I reached into the bag, and I pulled out the what? The Word of God. They're like, what's that, Uncle? I said, this is a Bible. This is the shark. And I, I meant it. So it's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of both bone and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, are you, I, 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 you got to be in it. 
One of the greatest things that I could do as a parent is to put my children in the Word of God. And to make sure that at some point I transitioned, you understand this, from family devotion to their own time reading the Word of God. And as they did, I began to watch their life change. Another biography I read, maybe one of my favorites, was by George Mueller. He said this, and I say it to you men and women. Mueller said, this is one of my favorite, I think it was by steer on delighted in God. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend to every day, he said, was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how much he, he said I might glorify the Lord, which would be noble, He said, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and the meditation on it. That's here. This law is perfect. And it revives the soul. You say, well, Scott, what do you do (laughs) every day? And there's no perfect habit, but I can tell you what I do. I wake up in the morning, okay, and I probably make some coffee. (laughs) And the first thing I do is read my McShane Bible reading plan. Takes me through the Bible in one year, big picture, Takes me through Psalms twice. Takes me through Proverbs. You say, but Scott, you study the Bible. Probably 30 hours a week. I mean, I don't know how Dr. Beaky, he's like a cyborg. How does he write all, but I'm studying all the time. But you know what? I have to be like Mueller to get my heart happy in the Lord. And I got to tell you, I don't want to be a professional pastor. I don't. I mean, I'm in the Word all week, probably 35 years probably on a regular basis close to 30 hours now you you might not have that opportunity as i've had over the years but i don't even do that at the beginning i just turn my bible reading plan on why i need my soul revived i need my soul satisfied i mean usually after i preach on sunday i'm probably trying to talk myself out of stopping the ministry on monday it's just hard but i listen I hear, I read. So here's the beneficial effect. It restores the soul. Second, okay, the transforming power of God's word is it not only restores the soul, but let me just put it this way, the second transforming power is it makes wise the simple. Wise the simple. Verse 7, look at it, 7b, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So here there's a distinctive title. First, it was called a law. Here, the distinctive title for God's word, I like this, is a testimony. It is a witness for truth. Sometimes that word testimony is translated, I don't know if it's that way in your Bible, 
statutes, okay? In other words, testimony statutes. But the word of God is not only his law, the word of God is the testimony of God. I mean, even as I'm up here, we have a God who talks, a God who has spoken, a God who not only created the world in one through six, but a God who has revealed himself in the word of God, and the word of God is the testimony of God. Obviously, here it's a testimony to truth, and God, do you believe this? I do. You say, well, Scott, you're getting a little charismatic. No, I'm not. When you read the word of God, God is speaking directly through his word. Not in an audible voice, not in some kind of vision. You're hearing the very word of God. And so here, the psalmist called it a, a testimony, okay? Dr. Beakey referred to baptism today and when we do baptisms, people give their testimony, and you know what I'm talking about. They're giving their testimony about their life. You're holding in your hand the testimony of God. He's directing his will towards you, okay? The testimony is his word. It's a testimony to truth. And then there's a descriptive Quality. Look again, verse 7. It says there that the testimony of the Lord is what? Sure. So it's not only perfect, complete, blameless, without defect and error, but here it's sure. What does that mean? It just means that it's reliable, that it's faithful, that it's trustworthy, the testimony of God is to be believed. God has spoken in his word, and his word is sure. You're, you're, you're holding in your hand something flawless. The word of God is reliable. It's to be trusted. It's sure. And if you write some of these down, no wonder the psalmist said in 119.34, incline my heart. That's how you can pray. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Psalm 119.36. Psalm 119.111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Listen, I don't know what you might think coming in. Maybe you've come with someone. But I'm telling you that you're holding the very testimony of God in your hand. And no wonder the psalmist said in 119, 129, your testimonies are wonderful. You say, well, I, I don't know if I read I'm just, I haven't read. It's my Bible's on my dashboard on Sunday, and then I pick it. Listen, there's a beneficial effect here. You're, you're reading his word. It's sure. And, and here, Psalm 119, 124 says, your testimonies are my delight. 
You say, well, I don't know if I feel that way. Pray that God give you a willing heart. He's going to transform you if you're reading it. No wonder in 119, 31, he said, I cling. I cling to your, what do you cling to? I watch some of the young people, FOMO. You know what that is? I had to ask, what's FOMO? The fear of what? Missing out. People are just consumed with Instagram and Twitter and uh, is it called TikTok or um, Facebook? And man, I mean, they're faster than me. I'm just like Dr. Beaking and I are getting older. I mean, I just, they're flying on this kind of stuff. But the psalmist said, I cling. So I'm asking you, how much of your time goes to social media? Or do you say with the psalmist, I cling to your testimonies? Listen, God's word is so sure you can bank your life on it. Hebrews 6, 18 says, it is impossible for God to, what? Lie. He can't lie. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's holy, holy, holy. Nothing has ever stained his presence. And he's breathed his word and you're holding it in your hand, okay? And because it's sure, say, so what's the beneficial effect? Look, verse 7, we're not getting very far, are we? I, I might just stop, and we'll pick it up on Monday. Um, you guys are listening awesome, but look at verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the what? The simple. You say, what does that mean? Like, it's good to be simple in some things. But I think you know that this word is stated in a context that's neg negative. To be simple, if you want to know what this is, in the scripture, it's to be naive. We would say that's not good. It's not good for a 19-year-old young woman to be naive. It's not good for a 20-year-old young man at a university campus to be naive or to be simple, but simple means naive. But there's another word in the Hebrew. It's, it describes foolishness. It describes somebody who's simple is somebody who's naive and foolish. And literally, it means that they are open, if you will, to the entrance of good and evil. They're open to persuasion. They're open to be easily seduced. In fact, Proverbs 14, 15 says that the simple believe what? Everything. You need discernment, young people, older people, okay? Proverbs 7, 7, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. So there it's a synonym for a fool. Now listen, I'm not being mean like that's you. Simple refers to those who need guidance, whose minds are opened in a negative way, who are easily inclined. And here the beneficial effect of the transforming power of God's word is that it makes the simple, what? Wise. 
you say, I want that guy's wisdom. If you see a man of God, I want her wisdom. But listen, if you want wisdom, have models, have mentors. But if you want to be a wise young man, and if you want to be a wise young woman, here in verse 7, it's so sure, is the word of God, that it will make you wise. It will give you discernment for living. It will give you discernment for making decisions. It will fill your mind and heart and reveal the will and the word of God to you as you place yourself under it. And you say, why did you get so excited right there? I can't believe how many youth groups aren't holding the book up. I, I just remember years ago, I'm in Chicago and this person asked me to speak to this youth group and I walked in and there's 200 people just running around and I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Scott. And so the youth director said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play some games. We're going to sing some songs. Then we're going to do a, cra a crowd breaker. And then you're going to speak. Thank you. How long do I get? About 15 minutes. Now, you know, maybe in a certain setting, that's okay. But I'm like, 15 minutes? You know, that's like a... A devotion makes a Christianette, you know what I mean? And, and it's just, I thought, 15 minutes and these kids are going to hell? And you're not giving me any time to open the book, to reveal the word of God? I thought it's a sham. It's like we're hiding pizza under the pews to get them to come in and failing to give them the very thing they need, right? It's the power of the word of God if you want young people to be wise Put their nose in the book. I remember when I wrote in my Bibles, in the Bible for my son, Johnny. I don't know. Who was that, Dr. Beaky? I think I said, read this book. The book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the book. But listen, if you want to be wise, I'm holding out this to you. <laughs> I want to encourage you. I want you to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to read the Bible. And some of you are like, well, that might be kind of scary. No, you can do it with me. You can get the machine reading plan, and you can audibly hear it. You could read it following the path. Listen, you can do it. you got the Holy Spirit living in you. You've been justified. You've already been sanctified so that all your sin is covered in Christ. But in this process of the greater sanctification... What you do with the book will tell me everything about your holiness. I'm telling you, the greatest need in the church today is for a holy people. I turned to my church on Sunday. We were dedicating parents. We don't call that dedicating children. We're dedicating the parents to the raising of these children. And here's what happened. So, hi, Philly. Okay. I was, I was talking to the parents. There's just two of them up there. They're holding their kids. They, they can see me. Hi. Okay. And, and then soon after I instructed them a little bit, I turned to our church and I said, the greatest thing you can do for these parents is to live holy. Holy churches show themselves to a community not because they're drawn by some attractive event, 
it's because the life of the people inside the church are holy before the Lord. And here, this is going to give you wisdom. Paul to Timothy, from childhood, you have, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Uh, you say, how did you get saved? Well, I'm, you know, it's the, I'm just, I was in the Word, I was in a youth group, and I was doing the devotions, and obviously the Word of God is powerful. And I'm just convinced as I'm reading the Word of God, I would say to you, I'm out shooting baskets as I mentioned to you, that Scripture popped into my heart. And that Scripture was so powerful to me, I was like, ha, ha. I, I was like, I'm done on the spot, but it saved me. So it not only revealed salvation to me through the power of the Word of God, but here it gives Wisdom, Proverbs 10, 8, it says a wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Who do you want to be? Wise of heart. Listen, I want to encourage you single ladies in here. That sounded like a song. But I, uh, sorry, I want to encourage you single ladies, not with some song. Read the word. Be attracted to a man who cares about this. Don't go after somebody else. Don't be allured by something else in worldliness. Be attracted to a man that's in the book. And men, you be attracted to a woman that's in this book. Because if you're in the book, you're going to be wise. Let me say this. Do you want to be a wise student? Read the book. Do you want to be a wise parent? Read the book. There was a time in my life with my wife. She had a little bit of a... I don't know. I, I don't know if she's watching this whole fish. Um, <laughs> she just had like a, I'm trying to think. She just loved Christ. But every now and then, she would think, I haven't done enough. Do I have assurance? And she's just a godly woman. So you know what I did? We began to read the book of Galatians every day. For about three months. So, well, that's a big deal. No, it isn't. Six chapters. What did it take? 15 minutes. And as, but as, as the word went in, her assurance came out, and she grew. You don't need to send somebody, her, I know, not, you don't need to go to some psychologist. If you want to be wise and have discernment and be a great parent or an athlete, then know and obey this book. Listen, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't, okay? Listen, you have waited so patiently. Did anybody fall asleep around you? One time I fell asleep on MacArthur. I was, <laughs> I was, I was a young kid. I, well, I was probably in seminary, and I was... I wasn't feeling good, and so he's just going, and I'm kind of like, and his wife walks up to me, and she goes, late night, huh, Scott? And I'm like, no, no, no. I, you know, I, I just felt so bad, and then I came into the staff meeting on Tuesday, and I got roasted, you know. <laughs> um, you guys have been great. Listen, that's enough, okay, because the mind can only 
endure what the seat can endure. So that's enough, okay? But listen, I just commend this book to you. You say, well, it's, it's, it's good for pastors. No, it's good for you. You say, it's good for the deacons. No, it's good for you. It's good for older people, which it is. It's good for you if you're 18, 19. I'm pushing that with you. We'll pick this up on Monday. Can I pray for us? Father, thank you for the book. Maybe just as your head is bowed, maybe as you go to dinner tonight, as you talk later in the night, what place does the word of God have in your life? The, the, the means of the word of God is going to make a difference in your holiness. Prayer as well, trials, fellowship. But listen, put a stake in the ground and whoever you are and whatever you end up doing, this is going to be the greatest revealer of your life in the next three years. Father, I thank you for giving us this book. I thank you that it contains your heart and your mind. I thank you, Father, for the truths that are in it. This book, O oh Lord, contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Father, we know that its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Father, would we read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. Father, we understand it contains the light to direct us, food to support us, comfort to cheer us. Lord, it's the traveler's map. It's the pilgrim's staff. It's the pilot's compass. It's the soldier's sword. And it's the Christian's character. Here the mind is restored. Heaven is opened. The gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is the grand object. Our good is its design. And the glory of God is its end. Father, just light a fire in this place. Create a revival in this place. And Father, we know that the prophet said there's a famine in the land for the hearing of the word of God. Call men out of this place to teach this book. Call women out of this place to model this in their life. Lord, all for your glory. As Dr. Beakey said one day, We'll just be utterly transformed. But in the meantime, we're a work under progress, and we need this. So, Father, would you reveal your truth? We love you, and we give thanks. Prepare us for the Lord's day tomorrow, and all God's children.